far as what we're doing this morning, we're on part two of, of a series on faith. And, and uh, it was interesting, Tam and I were uh, brainstorming something. It was kind of an idea she came up with. She was just, I was talking about a bunch of random theological abstract weirdness. And she just kind of, after listening for a long time, says, you know, the concept of half is really interesting. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It has nothing to do with Luther or Calvin or you know, where are you going? And, and she says, you know, half is really interesting. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, you know, it's just not really full. I'm like, all right. And then she just kept going. I was like, wow, this is really profound. She's like, you know, half marathons, not really a marathon. <laughs> and half times, you know, not really working. Um, you know, you, it is. She didn't say that. That was my own. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, she's like, you know, she's like, you know, when I hear half the calories, I'm really wondering, I wonder what it, what it actually would have tasted like, you know, and, and so we kind of like, I was like, that's really interesting, and so I kind of was like, yeah, when I go to all these restaurants in town, they do this, like, for lunch, this half sandwich, and then, like, salad or soup or whatever thing, you know what I'm talking about, the guys, and I always look at that, and I'm like, who, who, who's eating the other half of my sandwich? <laughs> I mean, I get the concept of saving money, you know, but where does that, can't you just put it on? It's like when you mess up at Starbucks and they give you both drinks, you know? Can't you just give me the other half of the sandwich? So, like, you know, you, you think of that, there's like, uh, you know, pay half down is like pretending like you have the money, um, but you don't, you know, and um, her, uh, strawberries, she's like half a flat doesn't do it of strawberries it's it's you're not really getting strawberries and you go home and you always think why didn't I just get the bigger one you know what I mean because strawberries you like eat one and then then you eat 10 and then they're gone and you're like and there it was it's not even dessert yet no strawberries left so you need a full flat right uh, I learned last night that halftime means nothing when you're playing Florida State uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> Half, half, half time is, uh, doesn't matter. Um, sporks. Not really a fork. Not, not re- you know what I'm talking about? It's a spoon, it's a fork. It, it's got the little spikes. It's not really a fork. It's half. Okay. Um, half court. It's not the same as basketball. Um, I go uh, around town here and I get um, half-calf. Have you guys, who works at Starbucks here? But if you, hey, this is a side note. Um, if you work at Starbucks here, can you just raise your hand or stand up real quick? <laughs> no, I, I'm going to honor you guys. <laughs> where are you? I know you're in here. Nobody's going to admit it. I was going to say we need to respect you guys more. And, and now you guys aren't even going to respect yourselves. I, hey, seriously though, this is a coffee town, and, and uh, I remember once being at a conference at Willow Creek. Willow Creek is in Chicago. It's this massive church. They bring thousands of pastors to these pastors' conferences, and then the pastors will, at lunchtime, spread out throughout this town, and the only people eating lunch in that town that day are like these, these pastors at this conference, and they don't tip. They, I mean, they, they're all cheap, right? I mean, I know my, my, my peer group. And, and so Willow Creek has this real problem in their community that they have this horrible reputation 
because all these pastors come in and not tip. So they began to actually say to the pastors at their conferences, please, um, we'll give you the money if we, if we need to, but please go tip when you go to lunch, right? So there's so many coffee places in Bend that we take it really for granted. And we begin to think that the people at the coffee places are just, I don't know, it, it just becomes mechanical. But a lot of those people at the coffee places are our fellow brothers and sisters here at church and how we treat them. I know Howard Schultz wanted the drive through guy at Starbucks to start talking to you when you pull up, and it's a little socially awkward that they keep asking you about your day. Has anyone else had this problem? It's not, it's not their fault. And so we got to make sure we value the relationship. Anyways, but no one was even willing to... Okay, the... Uh, but when I go around town, I, I order half-calf, and, and um, I get teased, you know, because it, it, it's like you're not really man enough for caffeine, um, and, and then you're, you know, well, then why are you even paying $3.50 for coffee, you know? Um, so you're kind of like a lower status than if you just were a coffee addict and, and just bought coffee. Um, anyways, so that, here's the idea. H- half in, we kind of know isn't the same as all in. Half-hearted, halfway, a job half done. And so we have this category for not really all the way there, but we, some, we somehow, in certain areas of our life, put a paradigm or a grid on top of things that allows halfway to be the measure of success or halfway to be okay. I learned this early on in school. It's like, um, it's not here's an A plus, shoot for it. For me, it was where's, where's the bar to, to get me out of this thing um, and, and I'll aim at that. Um, with family, um, you know, I mean, I, I've been challenging myself with this. Okay, Tamara, what's the minimum I gotta do with your family? Um, and I'll put it on the calendar. And, and I, I say that in all truthfulness. Like, it's an area that I'm, that I'm like, wow, I actually like them and I actually want to have this type family. I need to change my paradigm from just going, let me put Thanksgiving and another date on the calendar. You guys are mocking me, but I know there's like 100 dudes sitting here right now that should be... <laughs> right? It's not... It's, it's just the minimum. And here's the thing. We put faith in that category. That's my, that's my belief. We put faith in that category. And so we kind of approach it with, a, um, I know it requires something of me. Um, how much do I really need to give it? So at the end of the day, I can check the checkbox. What's, what's the halfway point? What's the, what's the bar that I, I can get above? Is it, is it just church attendance? Is it, is it going to a Bible study? Is it buying a book that I'll read a chapter of? Is it, is it language? Just kind of throwing a, a little phrase in here and there about prayer or about God or about, you know, to the glory of God or, you know, those, those key words that kind of, it's like, putting salt and pepper on half-heartedness and now it's spiritual half-heartedness which is good enough and I think that 
in doing that or when we do that, we completely miss what faith necessarily means when we understand it correctly. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. This is probably the cliche chapter, if there's a cliche chapter with regard to faith. And I typically am like, well, can I go find an Old Testament prophet to say the same thing? You know, that no one knows how to find it in their Bible. Don't even know how to pronounce the name. That'll be so much cooler than, than the passage we, you know, we've kind of always heard, you know, Hebrews 11. But there's something so simple and, um, and, and prophetic about Hebrews chapter 11 when we really want to understand faith and what it means to be wholehearted. And so let me just start reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. Verse 1, chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says this, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. That's usually where we stop. And that's kind of why it allows us to be half-hearted. Because believing that God created the universe doesn't really require devotion, does it? It requires mental assent. And I can do all sort of kind of lukewarmness in my life, in my relationship, in my pursuits, while still carrying in the back of my mind some kind of a vague notion of God as the creator. Um, does that make sense? But listen to the, the next part. Faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command um, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he was dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he could not experience death and he could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, creator God, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Last week, we talked about devotion and we talked about faith in terms of a relationship. When God took the Israelites out of the desert, it wasn't to take them to real estate, he wasn't trying to give them real estate. He was trying to give them a relationship. Real estate was just the, the context, the place where they would land as they were in this relationship. But relationship is the driver here. That's why uh, elsewhere in this book it talks about Jesus being our Sabbath rest. That Jesus, like the land, um, last night we were reading Chronicles of Narnia, my daughters and I, and it was er uh, the horse and his boy is the one we're on. And it's talking about this girl, Erebus, and it was... She's as true as steel, I think is what it was. And I stopped, and I was like, hey, girls, do you know what that is? Like, I don't know. What do you mean? I'm like, it's a metaphor. <laughs> What's a metaphor? So we, we took 10 minutes, and we were trying to come up with metaphors and teach the girls, like when the poet says your love is like a red, red rose, the poet doesn't really mean um, your love is, is like thorny and prickly and, you know, and, and six inches tall and got red petals. What the poet really means is it's, uh, it's majestic, it's noble, it's deep, 
it's, it's full, it's desirable, it's, it's warm, and it's welcoming, and it's inviting, and it's, it's a, it, it speaks to something deeper. It's a metaphor, right? Um, so then the girls were coming up, and, you know, mom is the best mom in the universe. Okay, yeah, but what would be the metaphor for that, right? Um, And the interesting thing here is, in talking about devotion last week, and talking about being wholeheartedly committed to God in this relationship, it's interesting that, that the, the biblical writers would use the Sabbath or the promised land as a metaphor for Christ. It's a metaphor for Christ. Meaning, he, he's the landing place this is the heart of where it all comes down to. This is the relationship. This is the unifying point. This is the A+. Plus. There is no half. It, it's you're either here or trying to get here or you're, you're aiming at something wrong. It, he's, he's the Sabbath rest. That means in a metaphorical sense, it's he's the last place. He's the finish line. He's the context. He's the air we breathe. He's the goal. He's what we were created for. He's the driving motivation behind everything. Our lives, our relationships, our pursuits, our goals, our dreams have, have him as the final end built into them or they're pointing in the wrong direction. Does that make sense? Sometimes we can talk about a lot of things in church and they can be a lot of things found in this book. But there's something interesting about how truth can lead you astray from truth if it's not situated in context. Let me unpack that for you. Truth can lead you away from truth if it's not situated in context. Marriage is a good thing. Family values are a good thing. If family values found in this book as truth become our idol and we don't situate it within context of the relationship we're supposed to have with Christ and the dependence we're supposed to have in faith and the goal we're supposed to have of all things being underneath him, then family values can lead us astray. We can begin to aim our life and our pursuits and our goals this way and, and kind of half-heartedly measure things out in terms of devotion over here and actually get led astray. Does that make sense? And so we can talk a lot sometimes in church about truth, but if we don't situate it in its context with Christ as the head, it can actually in a really weird, subtle way be misleading. And so faith here is defined and says anyone who comes to him must believe that God exists, that God is the creator, but that he also rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we're supposed to be devoted in earnestly seeking and driving and running after. And in that, faith says, I know and I trust and I believe that God, you will catch me when I jump off this cliff. That when I walk into the darkness and I can't see, you will guide me. That as I walk by faith, you will prove faithful and be the one who rewards me. There's no way that this can be half of anything. Or that we can do life any number of ways and just attach a vague notion 
of God as a creator out there somewhere and say, I have faith. What does that mean? I believe that God exists. I'm a Christian. I'm a, you know, I'm, I have some kind of affiliation with, with a group. I'm, you know, I got out of Clemson and, you know, other than the football, there wasn't anything about Clemson I needed or wanted. Okay? But they keep finding me wherever I go. And, and there's letters asking me for money, and there's credit cards and, and uh, death plans for me to leave my estate to them. Uh, and they find me wherever I go. And, uh, and so it's like, but I'm not, there's no, there's no devotion there. I don't want my relationship with God to be um, like my relationship with Clemson. It's out there. It's somewhere. Yeah, I'm kind of vaguely connected to it. The things show up in the mail. But, but that's the extent of it. It doesn't really factor into my life. Uh, I'm going to get a Delta card before I get a Clemson card. I want the miles. <laughs> am, I, am I, are you tracking with me? Let's keep reading. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He was justified by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. He was called to move, to relocate, to go to a whole different land, and there's no getting on a plane and going back for the holidays. He was led somewhere new, and he obeyed, and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. Talked to a guy this week. Feels his family's being called to a place he's never even been. It's crazy. Um, but I think when you're doing things by faith, it's crazy good because God will catch you. He rewards those who walk by faith. By his faith, he made his home in the promised land. Not because he could see, uh, see it because the, the promise was waiting there like a pot of gold or the job or the whatever. It's like, no, it was God's words that were the promise. And so he went to the land on the promise that God would catch him and reward him. That's trust. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a, a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, let me just, uh, verse 13. All those who were still living by faith when they died, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. So the things promised oftentimes extend beyond our earthly life. So all these people were still straining and running um, and uh, pursuing God by faith as the one who promises and the one who offers this reward when they died. So our devotion doesn't always cash out with a check at age 30, 40, or 50, or 60, or 70. Sometimes it's, 
It's waiting for us in heaven. That's faith. That, that requires an unbelievable amount of devotion. They did, not, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were, they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. <clears throat> An amazing thing about faith, there's all these books on it. It's, it's a phrase called finishing well. There's a, in upper levels of kind of grad school, seminary, things like this, there's this conversation about Christians not finishing well. And Christian leaders in particular not finishing well. Because you can get a lot of zeal in, in youth. You can get this passion. You can get this like, we're going to go take over the world for God. I have a lot of that. You guys know that. Um, but then you, you begin to run into problems. And you're, you're working with people. And man, working with people's messy business. And you mess things up. And you know it begins to get difficult. And the idealism begins to kind of go. And... And then it begins really easy to say, I'm giving and 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 nobody takes care of me, nobody appreciates me and pretty soon you have opportunity to return. You have opportunity to opt out. You have opportunity to not continue to walk by faith. I've seen a lot of missionaries come back. This is a really trippy thing. You get people in their 20s, leave for the mission field, come back, married couples, come back 30 years later after having served their whole lives in a foreign country. Um, and it's, in some, some of these contexts, it's, it's in countries where there's no women's rights and the wife has to endure for 30 years living in a culture that's incredibly taxing and difficult for her to live in. And they're there sharing the gospel and it's rocky and it's difficult. And they come back to the United States and you know what they find? The church that sent them might not even exist anymore. Because it had a church split, because he had warring factions or politics. Or the church that they used to go to, nobody there even knows them anymore because everybody's moved on or gone to different churches or found other places. And they come back after serving for so long and, and they, there's nothing. There's no honor, there's nobody helping them financially. There's nobody that, that values or appreciates. There's no one can even relate. Um, it's, it's incredibly difficult to finish well. And we have opportunity to turn to the side and it's a struggle and statistics bear it out. And, and faith, however, finishes well. If they'd been thinking of their own country, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. So even if people don't appreciate us, even if things are difficult, even if the finances are tough, the goal is we're longing for a heavenly, better country. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared a city for them. They are devoted to him and he is pleased to be called their God. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, 
he did receive Isaac back from the dead, uh, from death. So, quick side note, because this is one of the places in Scripture where it interprets other Scripture. And one of the ways you let Scripture um, be interpreted is you let Scripture interpret Scripture. And, and we always wonder, what's, the, what's the really going on with Abraham and Isaac? And God says, uh, Abraham, go sacrifice your one and only son, Isaac, who was the promised one. And so Abraham gets up, and the funniest part about that story is he doesn't tell his wife because what would his wife have said? You know what I'm saying? Um, and he goes to sacrifice his one and only son. And I think sometimes we can be like, really? Was that really okay? Was that really? I don't know. That's a pretty hard thing to justify on, on, in terms of ethical codes and whatnot. Um, Kierkegaard wrote a whole book on this, and he calls it the teleological suspension of the ethical. Drop that on your friends. They'll love you. What it means is te teleological means it has purpose or goal. Suspension of the ethical is there's never an ethical code that's ever been written that says it's an okay thing to go sacrifice your kid. And so faith, what, what Kierkegaard was arguing, is sometimes faith is this crazy thing where it suspends reason. You're asked to do something that you're like, this isn't rational. Mom and dad are not going to sign off on this. I can't tell my wife. She'll think I'm crazy. And what, what Kierkegaard was trying to say is in Scripture we see this strange thing where sometimes there's this teleological, purposeful suspension of the ethical and he's saying this is what was going on with Abraham. And Abraham goes and then right at the last minute God says, that's devotion. And by the way, you're understanding what it looks like for me to save my people. You were taking the promised child that was supposed to be the fountainhead of all these nations and you were going to sacrifice it. Guess what? I'm alluding to the fact that I'm going to provide the sacrifice. And so you see that in Scripture here, Abraham reasoned. So the writer of the Hebrews is saying, as Abraham's taken his son, he's trusting the whole way. God promised it was going to come through Isaac. So if he's asking me to sacrifice Isaac, then God must know how to raise him back from the dead again because God keeps his promises. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. He was willing to give Isaac over, and God gave Isaac back literally from the dead. The, the um, book of Romans, it says... Um, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but offer yourself as a pleasing sacrifice. You guys know I can't memorize word for word. It's okay because there's many different translations, so it's, I'm just melding them all. Um, but then it says, um, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing in God's sight. This is your spiritual act of worship. And the idea is almost like this. You take, as Abraham, you take your own self that was promised this life in Christ, and you go, I'm willing to like hand it over to you as a sacrifice, trusting that God can raise things from the dead just like he did Jesus. And then God, instead of taking you as a, as a, like a dead sacrifice, gives you back and says, here's your life now. Go live it out for me. And it's, and it's but it belongs to me. It's been sanctified. Faith is devotion. Um, if you go to 
DC and you go to the Lincoln Memorial, you'll see inside inscribed on the Lincoln Memorial the phrase, the last, they gave the last full measure of devotion. Love that phrase. It's like, man, people who are willing to die. There's no half in die. My mind's trying to think if there is right now, but I don't think there is. There's no half and die, the last full measure of devotion. So Abraham believed that God could raise the dead, figuratively received him back. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Listen to this. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. I want my kids to grow up to where they want They desire in a greater fashion to be identified with and potentially mistreated with the people of God more than they want ease, comfort, or the pleasures of sin. How is that going to happen for my kids? It's really simple. There cannot be any half in my life. If I want my kids to be full, there cannot be any half in my life. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward, he was looking ahead to his reward. And by faith he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer, the, the angel that came through and killed the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. I picture myself marching around Jericho a lot when it it comes to faith. Because I know how I would have felt. Day seven, trumpets. It's marching band. I, I would love for my kids to be in the marching band someday. It kind of looks fun. But when I was in high school, we made fun of the marching band. I, I look at it differently now, so you can't judge me. But in high school, it was different. And you take the football team and you put the instruments in their hands and say, you're not going to play in the game. You're going to do the halftime. Aaron Wells. How does that go? You take the swords out of the 18-year-old guy's hands with all the testosterone to fight a battle, and you put the instruments in their hands, and you say, don't fight, march. And endure verbal criticisms from the people that you have all the energy to go fight and kill. And do it day after day after day after day 
after day after day, seven of them. And I'm like, dang it, God. That's the way everything, isn't it? That's the way everything is with faith, isn't it? Here's the, here's, we can break stuff faster than we can build it. We can break a pot faster than we can make a pot. We can break a toy car faster than we can build a toy car. We can burn a house down faster than we can build a house. We want God to build things for us at the speed that things break. Now, urgent, visible. It's not there one night, it's there the next day. And, and I'm realizing more and more that faith is like agricultural stuff. It's, it's like plants. It's like the creation that God built. It's things growing over time. It's seasons slowly morphing in May and June and bend into summer. It's, it's not fast. Building doesn't come like breaking does. But when I pray, I pray with a sense of time that's patterned to speed of breaking, not the seasons of growth. And so God's taking the Israelites in and he's like, you can get battle, it's one day, and it's all about your strength, and it's all about now, and it's all about um, testosterone. You guys can get that. And at the end of the day, what you're going to receive is, we did that. The fruit of our labor. But at the end of seven days, with the instruments, you're going to get, God did this. And someday I'm going to try to teach you guys, you Israelites, that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And I'm, I have to set up the metaphors for you. I have to set up the life lessons, the analogies, so that you really, really understand those who seek me earnestly, I reward those who seek me earnestly. You come to me with full measure of devotion. You allow me to catch you and take care of you. I'm not a God who got, who's got you halfway, you do the other half. I'm the God who's got you full way, so you come to me all the way. And so here it is. So this is how it goes down. Think of, I mean, go home and think about it and say, if I season my prayers to God through the idea of marching around Jericho, what would they look like? How would they change? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, Women who's, who received back their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. 
full measure of devotion. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. They were chapter 1, they were chapter 2, they were chapter 3, they were chapter 4. Jesus was the climax. We are chapter 7, chapter 8. Together, it's the whole story of God. Together, it brings him glory. Together, we are what he is doing in this world as a family. Why is the local church necessary? Because we're in this age where it's almost like we can debate it over tea. Ah, Is the local church still necessary? Maybe not. We've got books. We've got podcasts. There's a lot of bad at the local church. It's still necessary. It will always be necessary because God's story is made complete not by one of us, but by all of us together. And we begin to critique churches And say the reason people have half a devotion to God is because the church isn't good enough. I partly agree with that, but we're, we're, we're kings and queens of false dichotomies in America, aren't we? Isn't it also true that the the church is half-hearted because the people are only half devoted to God? If we can measure our devotion to God because of the health of the church, maybe we can also measure the health of the church by our individual level of devotion to God. If God is the one that holds it together, if it's his body, his family, maybe the health of the family is a byproduct of all of us and how we really see God. If we were really devoted to God, Would we find replacements when we cancel on kids' ministry or set up or whatever it is on Sundays instead of just walking away from it and letting it be somebody else's problem? If we were really devoted to God, would we only join in and affiliate with Antioch in town when somebody's excited about it, but when we hear negative things go, yeah, I know? Or would we say, don't talk like that? That's my church. It's my family. Yes, it's not perfect, but it's growing or it can grow and I'm committed to making it grow and I know you see the flaws, but look at the positives or look at what you can do with the problems and then join in. If we really identified with it, would we be fair weather fans or would we be like the Chicago Cubs fans? Because I'm devoted to God and this is his body, his bride that he loves. He's got grace for it. Maybe I can have grace too. So maybe we can evaluate churches in America being half-hearted, not because the pastors or the elders or the staff or whatever is not good enough to bring about full devotion. Maybe it's actually also the half-heartedness of faith in America produces a half-hearted church. Because church, ecclesia, the Greek, is a gathering of God's people. It's not a building. 
And Ken's not the head of it. It's a body of believers that together grow and build each other up in love as we all are nurtured and pursue the head, which is Christ. These people were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Full measure of devotion. How? Well, we got to somehow get past sin which really can easily entangle us. We're all really easy targets for sin. We got to somehow get past that and we got to be able to Lighten the load with the things that bog us down or hinder us. So we got to somehow navigate sin, which can actually really get us. And we got to lighten it up so that we're free to run hard after God. How is that going to happen? As we look to being surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Brothers and sisters, so if I wake up in the morning and say, my peer group is Paul, John the Baptist, Peter, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joseph, who kept getting knocked down over like 30 years. I don't know how many years it was. A long time. And always landed on his feet. And at the end of his life, instead of being bitter, was like, what you who did me wrong, my brothers, Meant for bad. God meant for good. God worked through it. I stayed devoted to him. Now look how he's rewarding not only me, but I get to be the savior of my whole tribe. That's my peer group. That's your peer group. When we read stories like uh, Elizabeth Elliot writing about her husband, that's our peer group. Those aren't superheroes. We're not the half-hearted ones and then they're the ones that like overachieved. And hey, isn't this a nice pecking order? We get to learn about them and, and look up to them. And then we settle for here. No, if I want to, to walk by faith, if I want to live truly believing that God's going to reward me, if I want to have the endurance to, to live up under suffering and identify with the people of God even though persecuted, and not take the immediate gratification of sin. If I want that, i got to surround myself with a peer group that's going to hold me up to that. That's how it begins to change. Do we want to just identify with God as a creator God out there? Do we want to identify with an American church that's characterized sometimes, oftentimes, by easy believism, cultural Christianity, consumer-driven um, style-based choices of where we're going to identify? You know, it's a really interesting thing when you go to 
the World War II generation, it was duty-based. The great revolution in the 80s was we have a consumer culture that makes choices based on style. Let's, let's make the style match the generation. That's logical. Just like if we would go to another country, we would speak that language. So let's make the style fit that generation. That's lo- it's logical. Okay? And look at, wow, the church exploded in this. But now the kids of this generation don't have the same style as the parents. Now what do we do? Well, if we haven't taught devotion, if we haven't taught obedience, if we haven't taught commitment, if we haven't taught the value of the local church even when it doesn't fit style, then we're going to lose and we are losing the kids of that generation. Does that make sense? I don't know where that heck I'm at, but that's okay. Um, I want to give you the next verse, and then we'll, 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 we'll go kind of on a long downward slope to being done here. Verse 2. <laughs> Chapter 12, verse 2. Listen to this. So who's your peer group? Are you surrounding yourself, whether in, in this community or in a small group, or even just people you know that are, are dead, but they can inform your faith and challenge you. Are you surrounding yourself with a great cloud of witnesses? Verse 2 says this, Therefore let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the other thing here, first thing is who's your peer group? Second thing is where are your eyes fixed? Where are your eyes fixed? And if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're fixing our eyes on the true center, the author, meaning he defined it, and perfecter, meaning he finished it, of our faith author and perfecter of our faith. So there's an example in Jesus of what true devotion and true faith looks like. And we ne- I've never heard this talked about in church. So we're going to take and fly through the book of John and pull out all these passages because I think it's incredibly profound. So kind of walk with me through the book of John here. So turn to John 5. We'll start there. John 5. And I want you to see the pattern emerging here. John 5, verses 19 and 20. So Jesus is talking about life through the Son. um, And he's making the the relationship between him and his Father. In verse 19, Jesus gives them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, uh, he will show him even greater things than these. Listen to that. The Son can only do what he sees the Father doing. Chapter 8, verse 28. 
Picking it up in verse 27, it says this. They did not understand what he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, 8.28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Chapter 10, verse 37. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Do not believe me as the Messiah unless I do what my Father does. Chapter 12, verse 49. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. Not just what to say, but the tone, the inflection, the whole mood, the whole vibe, the whole idea. God gave me what to say and how to say it. Fascinating thing here, just an aside. Jesus promises to his disciples in Matthew 19, um, someday you're going to be taken in, into courts and put in front of kings and magistrates, put on trial. Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. For at that time you will be given what to say because it will not be you speaking but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So what Jesus is saying is true of him. He later promises as something that can be and will be true of us. So this example we're getting is really profound. I did not speak of my own accord but the father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. Chapter 14 verses 10 and following Chapter 14 says this, and this is when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life, but he says in verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Verse 12, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing he will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring, bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. So once again, what I've been doing is what the Father has giving me, given me to do. And you also, when I go, are going to be doing what the Father gives you to do. All right. Uh, lastly, verse 31, same chapter. Chapter 14, verse 31. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. What is Jesus saying? Over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, what I'm doing isn't from me. It's what God gives me to do. What I'm saying, yeah, it's not my truth. It's the truth that God gives me. When I speak with authority, it's not my authority. It's a derived authority that God gives me. The decisions I make are his decisions. When I go to heal people, I go to heal people because God has called me to heal people. I go up and wrestle with God all night in prayer, and then the disciples come find me. They're like, where have you been? We got a whole line queued up. Uh, people went and told their friends and their family, a whole new group of sick people's there. We got to go. Jesus says, no, it's time to leave. 
When I heal people, it's because God tells me to heal people. When I leave, we leave because God says it's time to go. I wrestle all night with God. What am I to do? Where am I supposed to go? How is this supposed to work out? You show me, I will follow. Jesus wrestles and shows that devotion is measured by dependence. And the most perfect person, the one who authors our faith and perfects our faith, shows us that it doesn't come because of his own internal goodness and his own internal perfection. Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, the Father in heaven. He shows us that when we have true faith, we don't grow up into this independence We grow into dependence. You take the best quarterback, and he's not independent from the coach's will. He is meshed with the plan and what the coach would have, and they work in harmony. And Jesus shows us that faith is measured in dependence. And so when we we understand that, it's all the way in, not just with craziness and zeal. It's all the way in with wrestling with God as to what would you have me do? What would you have me say? We ask all the wrong questions, I think, when we pray. When we really understand faith, we should be walking into our closet and saying, God, what clothes do you want me to wear today? If you tell me not to wear anything, I'm just going to wear my default. But if there's a reason I'm supposed to wear something that I'm not aware of, you tell me. God, where am I supposed to go today? Who am I supposed to meet with today? What am I supposed to say to this person? Is it what's presenting on the surface? They want to meet about whatever? Or should I really dig a little deeper because there's something else I'm not aware of? God, what am I supposed to say today? What am I supposed to do for my spouse today? What am I supposed to do with this job today? God, I, I kind of feel like I'm a little bit lost, like when the trail gets thin and And I don't really know where the trail is going if you've ever hiked in the mountains, you know. There's clear road signs and markers and and where people walk. And then there's those those areas where it's rocky and you can't really tell. God, I, I feel out of touch. I don't quite know where you're taking me. And so all night long, I wrestle and I wrestle and I wrestle and I listen. And it might take weeks and it might take months. But I am wrestling like the psalmist, like Jesus, like... Elijah, like any of the prophets, I'm wrestling because, God, I need to know where you're calling me because I only want to go where you're leading. And if I can't really tell where you're leading, I'm going to wait here, and I'm going to wait here, and I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to wrestle. I just hunger for more people that will come into work with rings under their eyes. Not because of the microbreweries. By the way, those are all good. Or, or the wine or the TV show or the whatever, but because they laid awake in bed and wrestled. I think God loves exhausted people sometimes because they're easy to lead. I think God loves exhausted people sometimes because they search more than when we're just so energetic and just going, going, going. I, uh, I just finished that book. You guys know I finished that book. The one that um, a bunch of people came back to me like, hey, Ken, this is a really big book. There's no application. <laughs> well, where's the application? And so myself and a few people wrestled with that. And then we were just like, you know what? <laughs> There's just no application. 
There's no application. Um, another reason why my mom's going to be the only one buying, buying the book. Um, I actually think she already has on pre-order. Uh, but here's the thing. I'm so fed up with application. I'm so fed up with formulas. I'm so fed up with steps and how-tos, and I'm so fed up with things that rhyme and, and, and alliterations and acronyms. I'm, I'm so fed up with it because I actually think that the tension is the gold mine. I want people to read my book and go, holy cow. <laughs> the, first uh, the first chapter was uh, titled Cluster, and then they made me change it. Um, the, uh, I want to surface the tension because you know what? Where I'm supposed to go is different from where you're supposed to go. Where God's calling me is different from where he's calling you. The way he's gifted me is different than how he's gifted you. The opportunities I'm going to have are going to be different than the opportunities you're going to have. The way I'm going to suffer is going to be different than how you're going to suffer. But what's common to both of us is that the one who authored and perfected our faith and showed us what it really looks like shows that wrestling with God and waiting on God and being in alignment and independence upon God for every little thing, whether we go back into town to heal more people, which is good, or whether we leave now. Well, Jesus, couldn't you have just done two hours of healing and then left? No. God actually says to go now. Wow, so you mean I actually got to pray in the morning for more than just I got a test at the end of the week or Aunt, Aunt Mildred has a hurt thumb and, and, and it's on my prayer list, but I actually got to pray about what I do at 7 o'clock versus 10 o'clock instead of just doing what's good or logical or rational? You mean, God, you would actually call me to do things that people wouldn't understand? You, you mean I got to be attentive every day because it's really about everything I say and even how I say it, let alone what I do? Boy, God, please, you got you to begin to teach me how to hear your voice because I got to really know that you're leading me. God says, yeah, that's the whole thing here. It's relationship. It's devotion. It's dependence. That's why all those problems about, or all those promises about, I actually will lead you. I actually will answer your prayers. I actually will reward you when you earnestly seek me. I, I'm not promising stuff. I'm promising me. See, the, you, the tension is the answer. When you realize how awkward this really is and how we really need to hear God and be led by God, when you realize that God is saying, that's it. It's the relationship, don't you understand? That's exactly it. And all these promises about answering prayer aren't about the stuff. It's about me. And it's about you. And it's about faith. And it's about the dependence that comes and you being able to truly walk and do what I would have you do and where I'd want you to go. You're now getting it. Yes, and yes, that's hard, but, but now we can go down this way. And no, you don't need five steps 
to a better prayer life. You need to stay up all night, this night, wrestle. I'll tell you where to go. Five steps to a better prayer life aren't going to tell you that I actually want you to move to South Dakota. Four steps to a better faith walk isn't going to tell you that you need to go forgive that person at 8 a.m., not 9 a.m., but 8 a.m. It's, it's the tension if we're willing to take it to God and wrestle and listen and plead and beg that he would speak into our life. And that's why when Jesus found these Pharisees that were like sitting back half-hearted with regard to him, evaluating, critiquing him, you know, maybe saying okay to the good things, but then, you know, criticizing the things that the rest of the people were criticizing because they weren't going to really defend him. And then these women walk in, push their way to the front in tears, wiping his feet, and Jesus says, yes, yes. It's the tension. It's, it's the hunger. It's the wrestling. It's the desperation. I remember that song. You guys remember that song? I'm hungry for you. Um, I'm desperate for you. How does it go? But it was like sung really, really emotional. Like, like um, I had this awkward moment. Like if I sing, I'm going to look really awkward if I sing it really awkward. But, you know, I'm desperate for you. And I remember there's this debate about that song. It's like, ah, it's a little over the top, a little too much for me. It's a little awkward. Eh. What do you think? What do you think the psalmist meant when he said, My soul longs for you, God, like a deer pants for water? I mean, when you're wrestling in the middle of the night, man, desperation's not awkward. Desperation is awkward for half-hearted people with half a devotion. I, I want my kids to grow up seeing an awkward measure of devotion in their dad. That when someday they're reading about the great cloud of, of witnesses, I would be in that cloud for them. I, I hunger for this church. Someday I hope to not take a paycheck from this church. I shouldn't say that. I, I don't... I, I would love for God, I pray about this, to bring that opportunity. Because I want to feel 100% in the mix with us. Because not only do I hope that I would be the example of the great cloud of witnesses in my kids' minds, I hope this church, however imperfect, that we collectively could be the example of what church could be should be for not only us and our kids, but all the people we meet that are pessimistic, burned out, cynical about the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. So I, I really long for that desperation. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We want faith. We want devotion. And in that, we want dependence Teach us how to pray right. Surface a tension in our gut that will not go away until you've been able to speak to us the way you need to speak to us. Please just give us an aversion to, to easy formulas, half-baked, 
God, just save us from formulas and give us yourself. Save us from formulas and give us faith in Christ's name, amen.